Well, as a part of my four-day weekend, one of my tasks was to drive up to my parents' place in New Hampshire and to turn off the heat so I could turn on the heat. I know that probably doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but my parents have a, like many of your homes, a conventional boiler, forced hot water, you know, runs through, whatever. But they had that turned off. Up to this point in time, they had been using a, they have one of those whole house air conditioning units, you know, that can go up on, kind of high up on the wall, and it comes with a heat pump. And somehow or another, not only can it cool the house, but it can also heat the house. Somehow, and I have no idea how it works, but even though it's 40 or 45 degrees out, it can somehow or another extract the heat from 40 or 45 degree air and heat the house inside to 65 or 70. But now that it's starting to get really colder, and it doesn't have any kind of a booster in it, it's not all that efficient, so he wanted me to switch it over. You know, and um, I got thinking about that on our way, my way back from the drive up there, this time thinking, you know, that's probably a great principle for us to bring to our text today. The text that we're going to read this morning, probably for the average church grower, is the most terrifying passage in the New Testament. Okay? But we're going to try to look at it and extract some positive things that we can build our spiritual journeys around. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts, the fourth chapter. You're using one of our pew Bibles. You'll find our text right around page 927. It might be on 928 at at the beginning. But we're going to pick up with verse 32 of chapter 4. Again, putting it in the flow of the of the history that God is sharing with us about the life of the early church. Peter and John have been used of of God to heal a man in the temple complex. And as a result of that, they were able to draw a large crowd and they testified that it was because of the resurrected Christ, which confirmed that he was the Christ, this man had been healed and he invited people to faith. And they had been arrested and then threatened no longer to speak in the name of Jesus. And they had gone back and joined together with the body and had prayed, not for protection, but for boldness in declaring to being witnesses. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 32. Now, the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses or sold them, or uh, all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. In the sense they, they offered them for the church to use to minister to people. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, He kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge 
and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard these things, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. There was an interval of about three hours. Then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to him, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young man came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Great fear came on the church. We read a passage like this and great fear comes on us. We, we get a little terrified. You know, it actually starts out really pretty good. If you could just do 32 through the beginning of verse 34, we'd be all set. There's a large group of people living together with one mind and one heart. You know, not, not holding on to our stuff, but you know, using it for the common good. And the church being able, the apostles being able to give great testimony to the resurrection and great grace being on anybody. And there would be absolutely no needy people whatsoever among us. But then the text begins to get scary. And it does so for most of us for one of two reasons or both reasons. The first reason is we look at this text and we see the magnitude of their generosity. And we say, does God expect me to live that way? And that scares us, doesn't it? I mean, you look at this text and the, the beginning of it is a summary statement. And Luke's going to give us several of those that look at the life of the church, kind of telescoped. It may cover periods of months, maybe even years. But here he comes up with a statement and says, this is what they were like. They were one heart and they had one mind. God's grace was upon them. The apostles were preaching with Great power to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, presenting the gospel. And in the midst of all of that, there were people who were selling their homes or their land and bringing the proceeds and presenting them to the Lord's use. And with that, they eliminated all poverty in the church. And then he goes on and he gives us two examples of that. A positive example a guy that we tend to know as Barnabas, and he's going to feature heavily in the story as it moves along in the book of Acts. This is Luke's way of introducing us to him. He was from Cyprus and obviously at some point had migrated or immigrated to Jerusalem. He owned land around there. He was from the Levite clan, which meant that he could, if he had wanted to, served in the temple in some capacity, not as a priest, but as somebody who worked in the temple network. 
And he was a guy who, who went out and he sold a piece of land that somehow he had acquired and he brought the proceeds and he gave 100% of it to the Lord's work. Then we have a negative example of that of Ananias and Sapphira. That, that you know, you, you, you put the pieces together and you, you just get the sense in this that Ananias and Sapphira, that they're seeing people do this. And they're seeing the joy that it's bringing to the church. And, and, and there is maybe, you know, in, in, a, in a healthy way, some status. that People are able to celebrate, well, boy, God really prompted Barnabas to do this. And isn't that a great thing? And somehow or another brought the, the light, if you will, the focus on the Barnabas for just a moment. And they said, we want that attention. So they went out and they sold a piece of property that they owned. And they sold it for X but they only brought a percentage of X and presented it to the Lord. But we look at this text and, and, and we struggle. Does, does God expect us to be that generous to his kingdom? That, that's what we wrestle with. You know, we, we ask the question, well, you know, is this, is this what we're supposed to do? Now, now there's a couple of things in here. One, one is that, you don't necessarily see in the rest of the New Testament this became normative. Not every church did this. So it's not necessarily something that's required of us. Secondly, this wasn't communism. This wasn't that, okay, you joined the church, you signed it over the deed to your property. As Peter's interaction with Ananias says, hey, it was your piece of property. As long as you owned it, it was yours to do with as you pleased. Even after you sold it, you didn't have to commit the money to the Lord's work. But once you committed it to the Lord, it was over. You know, and so we struggle with, does God expect us to be this generous? Is that his expectation of us? And the whole thing is somewhat just terrifying to us. Especially when we live in a society where we measure our identity by how much we have and where we live and our security is how based upon how big our bank account is and and the challenge to us is immense and it's terrifying and a great fear (laughs) comes upon us all but there's another reason and that's just the whole swiftness and the severity of the judgment that ananias and sapphira experience isn't it i mean it's it's terrifying you know, Ananias walks in, and Peter confronts him. We, we don't know who was there. I mean, obviously, there were some young men somewhere close by who were able to remove his, his corpse after he had died. But we, we don't know if this was in a large assembly or in a small gathering or whatever. But he walks in, and somehow or another, Peter knew from the Lord that Ananias had lied. That he had lied to God. He had lied to the Holy Spirit. And that Satan had entered his heart. And he, and he says to him, so, you know, so he confronts him. And, and when, when Ananias understands that his sin is open before God, because it's open for, before the church, he immediately dies of shock. God's judgment is swift and it's complete. Same thing happens to his wife. His wife comes in. Peter, in some ways, gives her the opportunity to confess so what, did, how much did you sell the field for? And she stick, sticks with the lie that was concocted by her and her husband earlier. And Peter said, well, 
Why have you chosen in your heart to lie to God? You know what? Your husband experienced judgment. You're going to do the same. And within minutes, she's dead. And then we back up a little bit and we say, you know, I got some sin in my life. What about my sin? What about God's judgment on me? And, and it's a scary thought to us that God's judgment can be that quick and that full on sin. What, what about the lies that I tell? What about the lust that I have for stuff? What about the cheating that I try to do? What about the spiritual neglect or the gossip or the criticalness or the judgmentalism or the lack of forgiveness or the bitterness or the anger? What, what about all that stuff? What's God going to do to me? We find it terrifying, don't we? Now, again, just a couple of comments to maybe to ear ease it. And I'm a little bit reluctant to do this because I think that you and I live in a generation in the church where we believe that we can play with fire and never get burned. That we can play with sin, we can tolerate sin in our lives, we can embrace this disobedience, and somehow or never, it's never really going to hurt us spiritually or any other way. And the Bible would say, in my paraphrase, you're an idiot when we do that. But I do want you to know here, couple of things. Because one of the things that confronts us with this text is, well, where was their chance for repentance? You see, I just want to commit, continue to commit sin until I get caught. And then I'll repent. <laughs> you know? Where's their chance for repentance? Well, you could say maybe there wasn't any. You could also say that this wasn't something they did. This is something they had planned out. And along the way, there were spiritual markers that said, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And they constantly ignored them. And then the moment came where there was no more opportunity to repentance. And folks, that's life for us. Somehow or another we think that we're always going to get that moment that we can wash it all away. And sometimes when that moment comes, we don't want it. Because our hearts become so hard. I met one of the most intense conversations I ever had. A guy that I had been a leader in our church in Hanover after I left, um, he, had, he just really kind of walked away from the Lord and let life kind of take him in, in his whole career movement, whatever. And he landed up in a relationship with somebody who wasn't his wife. And, and over a two and a half to three year period, he planned his exit from his marriage and his marriage to this woman. And, and as we got together afterward, in the midst of that, and I was sharing with him, I said, you know what? The most difficult thing is that you have constantly ignored the Lord's conviction on your life as a part of this process. And my fear is that you'll never, ever experience forgiveness for this. Because we think we can ignore it and ignore it and ignore it and ignore it, and then somehow or another we're going to still experience God's forgiveness. There's a word here that maybe doesn't work that way. But they had their chances. The other thing I want, I want to say to you from this before we move on to the, the spiritual heat pump side, trying to draw the positives out of this text, is, is, is that even though they died, the text doesn't tell us that they lost their salvation. And, and, and that's something for us to reflect on. 
And again, I'm somewhat reluctant even to mention that because somehow or another we want to lower what we think is the penalty or the price to the cost of sin in our lives. And yet the Scripture never tells us that they lost their salvation. Now, I will tell you that their corpses were treated with indignity after this. So that gave you some perspective on how the church saw it all. Because it wasn't customary just to roll a guy up in the carpet and take him out and throw him in the ground. Without any funeral, without any recognition of his family. with no That wasn't normal. But this guy was an outcast in the eyes of God. The way they saw it. And they treated his body as so. So what are the positives that you can take out of this? Because it is a terrifying text. And I will tell you, as I've prepared for this sermon, my prayer has been that great fear would come upon us. You know, that's the whole point. It's the whole thing that's repeated twice in this text, is that great fear comes about. What, where are the positives? What, we can, what can we pull out? Just, and, and I want to do these in a, in a, towards a crescendo, if you will. Let's start with kind of the basics, work to the middle, and come to the real point at the end. The biggest point. And, and the first thing I want us to extract from this text as a, as a positive is that God really loves the church. And God's going to protect the church. When you look at this passage of Scripture, you can see God's loving protection for His church. And you and I, as we look at this text, we can relish in the love and the protection that God has for His church. The church is going to be on the winning side because it's a part of the body of Christ. And you never go wrong when you choose the church. Now, I didn't say every local church, but when you choose the church, you never go wrong. Because God loves and protects and cherishes His church. It's the body of Christ. You, you can see in a, a little bit of an analogy here, and I... And I I think there's a ways in which God is communicating a message that reflects some things that happened earlier in the life of the people of God. Some of you remember in the book of Joshua, you know, Moses fades off the scene. Joshua takes over. They make their way across the Jordan River finally. They enter into the promised land. The biggest obstacle that stands in front of them is the city of Jericho. God leads them in the strategic plan. They have a tremendous victory and they're all celebrating. A few miles off, there's just barely a wide spot in the road called AI. We don't need all to go up there. You know, let's just send 3,000 guys out there. They can take the city. We'll make sure we don't leave any enemy behind us and we can keep moving. 3,000 guys go out. They attack this little, this little village of AI. They get defeated. They get destroyed. They're running back to the camp with a tail between their legs. And the whole region of Palestine is is celebrating the fact that maybe they got a chance against this invading army. All because one guy, by the name of Achan, had sinned. He had taken that which belonged to the Lord for himself. And it led to the defeat of the people. Here you see somebody who has taken what now belongs to the Lord. And before the church can get defeated, God deals with it. So the church stays powerful and effective to fulfill his plan. And it really is a message of God's love for his church. 
You know, I, th- there's just so many different ways that you could go with that message, but I, I'm just going to leave it there. You and I, we never lose when we bet on the church. Because the church is loved by God, the church is protected by God, and the church is going to be on the winning side. Not every church, not every church of every era, but by and large, the body of Christ wins. Bet on the body of Christ. Secondly, since sin kills, love conviction. Most of us don't like to be underneath a sense of conviction. It, it, that, that, that just isn't something that makes us feel comfortable. But I tell you what, as you look at this text, you see that sin kills. In an Ice and Sapphira's case, it was immediate. But I'll tell you, when we tolerate sin in our lives, it's going to kill us spiritually every single time. It just does. It is, it is one of the laws, <laughs> spiritual laws that God has set up. And because of that, you and I should cherish. We should embrace. We should rejoice in. We should love God's convicting role in our lives. To bring sin to our attention so that we can deal with it. And the thing is that you and I need to see this as urgent and as important. In fact, well, I'm going to bring up a slide. Some of you are familiar with this, this old quadrant that's been around for a long time. And I, I don't know if it was originated with Stephen Covey, but he certainly made it uh, famous in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But every single one of us, we assign things in our lives to one of these four quadrants. One of, the thing, one of those is the quadrant that we call that's urgent and it's important. For example, on April 14th, your taxes are urgent and they're important. You know, you know you've got to get them in the next day, and they're important to get done, and you get right on it, you get them done. There are other things in our, in our lives that are important, but they're not urgent. Losing 20 pounds and getting to the gym four times a week. It's important, but it doesn't have a deadline on it. Some things are urgent, but not important. Like, what time is the game on today? You know, it, you, if, if, if you miss the game, you miss the game. It starts in a certain time, so it has an urgency to it. Is it really important? There are other things in our lives that are urgent, not urgent, and they're not important. Junk mail, right? doesn't matter if you get to them or not, right? Many of us, when we deal with conviction in our lives, we deal with it either... In quadrant three or quadrant four. Some of us, we embrace it as being important, but we have no agenda to actually deal with it. And it just sits there on our to-do list for days, for weeks. Every, I virtually guess every single one of us this morning knows that there's something that we need to change in our lives spiritually, and it's been sitting there for weeks, if not months, if not years, and we haven't done it. That's because we see it as important but not urgent. For others, we look at it and say those things are not urgent and it's not important. This whole spiritual thing and the stuff about God and judgment, whatever, that's just something some guys caught, you know, came up with thousands of years ago. It's not really relevant to us anymore, etc. It just doesn't work that way. Life is here and now. Make the most of it kind of idea. And i got to tell you, you and I ought to be the people that drive conviction to quadrant one where we see 
God's intervention in our lives to say, this is wrong, change it, is something that is immediately gets attention and it's the most important thing that we can be dealing with in our lives at the moment. You see, with discipleship, following after Jesus comes responsibility. And when you and I ignore our responsibility, our followership, our discipleship is going to fall all the way apart. For example, I can guarantee you that there, there were people who, who have worshipped with us before at Hope Chapel. Maybe they worshipped with us for a year, two years, three years in a row. Now all of a sudden, they're just, they're just not here anymore. I can tell you right now, spiritually, in terms of form of discipleship, they're going backwards. They are not moving forward. Now, if God's led them to a different church, that's a different story. But if they're just not going anywhere, I've got to tell you, they're going backwards because they're ignoring their responsibility to be together with the people of God, to be a source of encouragement, to serve, to worship, to praise, to be a part of all of that. You and I need to be people who treat conviction in our lives as being both urgent and important. Last point I want to make. You and I ought to celebrate. One of the things that we can, we can pull out of this text is that there is an incredible spiritual power that goes with being pure before the Lord. That the whole thing here was that here was a church that was of one heart, one mind, They were totally honest before the Lord. They weren't lying to God. They weren't lying to one another. They weren't acting on the impulses that Satan had put in their lives. And they had given the Spirit total freedom. And because of that, they were experiencing great grace and great acts of power. And the church was blossoming. All because the church was pure before God. It's interesting that, you know, Richard, um, Robert Schuller built a crystal cathedral on the power of of positive thinking, right? God built the church on the power of spiritual purity. And, you know, you and I, when, when we tolerate spiritual impurity within our lives, it's, I, I don't know, I try to think of it this way. You know, you think about your, your, the, the circulation system in your body. You know, the, the transfer of oxygen and nutrients throughout your whole body, etc. And, and when you and I have plaque in our veins and it starts to choke that down, I mean, it just it begins to just suck the power out of us. You know, my father has just incredibly poor circulation in his legs because he just has. So, I mean, they went in to take a look and they said, you've got so many blockages, we can't help you. And they just kind of closed it back up, you know, and, and he can't walk, but maybe 50 yards and his legs just start to ache. It just limits his mobility. Now, he's fairly agile but he's got the endurance of, you know, about 50 yards. When, when you and I tolerate impurity in our lives, our, our, our spiritual endurance just begins to wash away and the power just kind of goes. You know, and, and, and you and I need to embrace spiritual purity, being totally honest before the Lord, Opening ourselves up, having hearts of Christian character as the thing that we cherish and treasure most in our lives. Because it is what God builds around it. And when we do that, God can do incredible things. Now, let me use an example. And, and I, let me just kind of 
pull a couple of ideas out of the text and kind of bring this together a little bit for this example. The text talks about eliminating poverty, and it talks about how people gave to the Lord. Well, let's bring those two things together here at Hope Chapel. Now, I, I freely admit the, script, the, the scriptural foundation of the New Testament is that you and I as God's people are to treat everything that we have as belonging to the Lord. So it's all for the Lord to use. But the scripture never necessarily says that we have to tie the sow in the New Testament to give a tenth. But it's interesting to me that we've taken our freedom in Christ and somehow or another we've made what we have much more about us than about God. For example, now, in context, I never know what anybody in the life of the church gives. Don't know, but every once in a while, on an annual basis, the finance team does a report on the giving in our church. Instead of using names, they just use numbers. One, you know, number one through number, actually we have about 200 giving units in the life of our church. So they just give it a ranking of what 100, number one through number 200 and kind of what they gave for the year. Now, if you want to make an assumption that the average household at Help Chapel has a $60,000 income. Now, I know there are many, some people who certainly make less than that. Some of you would love to be making sixty grand a year as a household. I also know that there are a lot of families that are making a whole lot more than that. But if you just want to say on average, and I think I'm being conservative, that the average household income is about $60,000 in the life of our church, this year... We will have no more than 20, and it may be closer to 10% of our giving units that will actually give a tithe. We'll have more than 10 families that will do that, but we won't have more than 20. I mean, we will have 20, close to 20 families that will do that, but we won't have 30 to 40. So that means the vast majority of our church doesn't come anywhere close to giving a tithe. That's between you and the Lord. We don't talk about money a whole lot here, but let me just give you an example. To my conviction... That if our church, the membership of Hope Chapel, actually tithe on their income, we could support a budget that's at least twice what we have right now. Now, if the church is pure, and we don't turn around and spend that money on ourselves, we literally could have hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in eliminating poverty in our region, in eliminating human need. See the power of purity? If we could just get less about spending on ourselves and somehow or another free it up for God to really use it. A few years ago, they did a study that said the evangelical church in America, if the, church, if the people in those churches just tied, there was enough money there to end hunger in the world. See the power of purity? God invites us to be pure. And our devotion to him. This whole text is about the fulfillment of the two great commandments. Loving God completely. And loving your neighbor as yourself. And the church was doing it with purity. Until Ananias and Sapphira showed up. There's great power in purity. I'm going to show you a slide. It's coming. This is a picture of a cathedral in France. My French is abysmal, but I think it's the cathedral at Amiens, I think is the name of it. In the early 1800s, a German poet stood outside of this cathedral, 
You see a picture of it on the inside, and then you see what it looks like on the outside. With a friend, and they were looking at it and marveling at just the magnitude and the detail and, and just the incredible architecture of the structure. And, and, his, and his friend looked at, said to the poet, says, well, how come Christians don't build cathedrals anymore? And the poet said back to him, you know, he said, cathedrals are built on conviction. And Christians don't have convictions anymore. They just have opinions. The question for us is what are we building? Is there convictions in our lives about spiritual purity, building cathedrals, or run-down churches? We need to choose now before it's too late. Let's pray together. You know, Father, probably just about every single week we sit here and as, as we study the book of Acts, and it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose. We, it's just so hard to take it all in. And God, there's a lot, a lot in this text today for us to have a conversation with you about. God, don't let one morsel of the spiritual food that you've given us today from this text get left behind. And God, give us the courage, the vision, the conviction to choose you and only you. For this we pray in Jesus' name.